You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Welcome to a very special episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. We are recording this live. We are in Perth. We are at the Western Hotel. We are at the Energy and Minds Conference. And we've got several hundred people here with us. And they're all hungry or thirsty for drinks and hungry for dinner, which will follow. But we've just had an extraordinary day, in fact, two days, of uh, discussions and presentations and excitement about the level of renewable energy and storage and the transformation that's happening, particularly in off-grid systems and particularly here in mines. And it's really quite exciting. I think I count myself, some people might say I'm a bit of an evangelist or certainly an advocate for the renewable energy industry. I still try and tell myself I'm a journalist, but I've been quite surprised by what I've heard today and really excited about it. And um, I hope we can reflect that in our conversation today. Now, before I ask the... um, panelists to introduce themselves and we've got a menu of questions to go through and get some feedback from the audience. I'll first um, introduce uh, my co-conspirator David Leach and I just want to make three observations David. One, I don't think I've ever sat doing the podcast in such a comfortable chair. Three more observations. (laughs) Three more observations, I'll be fair. Um, Two, we don't usually do this together and you can probably see why now. And um, three, um, I've been in Western Australia for four days now. No one has suggested to me that they should be building a new coal generator. Everyone seems to be very excited about getting as much renewables as they can into their off-grid mines. Have we come to the promised land? Uh, Well, I think think there's a lot of things to be said about it, Giles, and no doubt the panel's got a lot of uh, things to say. Um, I learned a lot from the conference, as usual. It's always great to talk to resource uh, people. The long background I have in uh, research analysis at stockbrokers and hanging around resource analysts uh, uh, always know that they, they, they know where a dollar is and uh, nearly as bad as investment bankers that not standing between them and you get hurt. Uh, um, uh, I, I think the overwhelming feeling I want to get, besides all the detail that we've heard today and I guess the increasing role of software in microgrids because, uh, and, and I guess the batteries as the facility technology that just helps to bridge the gap between diesel and, 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 and the variable renewable energy. That, that stuff's all great. Um, uh, but I think the thing I just wanted to point out before we go any further, not so much to our podcast audience but to the live audience, is just to remember about the, uh, the decarbonisation theme and to put and you know the implications that that has for China which is the mining industry's by far biggest customer. You know, 70% of China's 30% of global carbon emissions, all their coal-fired electricity, which is 70% of uh, the energy they get, as most of it's been built in the last 10 or 15 years. That's, uh, that's all going to turn out to be a terrible investment decision. Uh, the, the price of electricity uh, already in China is around $70 a megawatt hour. I, I'm Aussie. There's already lots of, uh, there's lots of legacy, uh, you know, aluminium smelter, captive power that pays less than that. But at the margin, that's what it is. It's using Australian coal. Um, you know, we're putting um, all, all, the, all the world's, just to throw a few more my facts out there, observations, uh, uh, all the world's coal, um, oil and gas produces about half a zettajoule. I had to look up a zettajoule uh, per year. But the ocean heat content, as measured by satellites, is going up at six zettajoules a year. That's 14 times that rate, 12, 14 times that rate. And, you know, the thermal inertia in that means that if we stopped it tomorrow, which, of course, we're obviously not going to do, we're going to put more in this year, uh, it would still take 40 or 50 years to to run out. So, you know, whatever you think your shareholders are telling you about decarbonising today, uh, they'll be telling you a lot more about it in a few years' time. Uh, and But that's not really the big worry. The big worry is the guys you're selling all those resources to uh, are going to run into a big problem down the track somewhere along the line, and that's, you know, I'll leave it there. Good stuff. It's time we introduced our audience, or had the audience introduce themselves. Um, we'll start at your end, Dermot, and if you can all just go say who you are, what you do, and why you're here. Thanks, Giles. Yeah, so Dermot Costello, um, I'm the WA Clean Energy Council advisor. Um, which basically is, is generic enough to encapture everything that's kind of happening in the renewable space, but a major focus of my um, 
role has been in the emergence of the policy development here in the state. So when I'd seen the, um, the heading for the, the session and there was policy involved in it, I was kind of going, oh, 4.40 in the evening, nobody's going to hang around to talk about policy. Um, and it reminded me back of the last couple of years, this is year three, I think, now of the, of the conference, and year one was so much enthusiasm and, you know, the, the resource sector was sounding out the renewable sector and it was all kind of, you know, feeling each other right to see what it was all about, but the enthusiasm two years ago was fantastic. Last year we were met by, oh, it's not really happening, what's kind of, you know, who's doing what, and there wasn't a huge amount um, really of, of positivity we felt in the, in the conference, um, which was basically summarized by the policy session last year, I don't know who remembers it, but um, we were having a very similar conversation when one of my colleagues took the huff and got up and stormed out. So I don't know who remembers that, but it was, it was definitely an interesting time. Well, let's, let's hope that doesn't happen now. And um, we just hope it won't happen, Giles. Yes, so, yeah. I, I promise. <laughs> I Maybe David might storm out, I don't know. Emily. <laughs> Thanks. Um, my name is Emily Elford, and I'm a principal consultant with Oakley Greenwood. Um, and uh, we are a specialised energy consultants. And one of the things that we do particularly is assist miners to understand what their power supply options and costs are for remote power, um, and then also assist them through the process of actually getting that power um, through the best contracting terms and the best power solution that's available from vendors through a tender process. It's a very specialised procurement process and one that um, not many miners really um, have in-house specialised um, personnel to do that. Um, my background is a little bit in mining. I was with South 32 for three years and commercial lead for the Cannington Solar contract um, for the whole power station and, and added the solar in. So that's given me quite a unique insight into uh, what vendors are capable of, what contracting looks like, and a whole lot of uh, lessons learned through that process. So it's been an interesting couple of days so far if you're listening to all the new projects that are coming on. Thank you. Will? Hi everyone, uh, my name is Will Raywood-Smith, so I'm the general manager of Sunshift, and Sunshift is a subsidiary of Langer Rourke, which is an engineering construction company. So Sunshift is a, a, a solutions provider, so we build, own, operate low carbon power solutions for miners, and over the last year we've delivered a three megawatt system for the South 32 Cannington mine, uh, together with EDL, and that solution that we developed there was really a relocatable solution to overcome mine life challenges. And Peter. Hi, uh, Peter Thompson. I'm the COO with Capricorn Metals, based here in Perth. My background is as a geologist, and I've been working on gold and nickel projects in Australia and Central Asia for uh, the last 30 years. Um, my interest here is is because Capricorn is trying to develop a gold project, an open pit in the Pilbara, and um, we need a 15 megawatt power station, and uh, we're very interested in, in the options available and uh, very much appreciated the last couple of days, particularly yesterday, learning about hydrogen technology and how that might uh, disrupt <laughs> Let's get into this conversation. And look, we're going to do policy first, and I don't think it might not be a very long conversation, judging by what I've heard here today. We've just had a federal election. Uh, we got a very unexpected result. I'm still trying to recover from it. I think the government's still trying to recover from it, because they're as surprised as anyone. Um, what does it matter? Um, they don't seem to be developing on a policy, on a coherent policy on energy and carbon. Um, today we learned that um, the man who handed the lump of coal to Scott Porison in Parliament is now his, one of his closest advisers, which is a double up with his former Chief of Staff at the Minerals Council of Australia, who is his, um, um, who's there now? Uh, yeah, Brendan Pearson and John Cunkorn. I'm not too sure how controversial that is in the mining industry conference, but anyway. <laughs> Dermot, let's start by... Um, what do you expect from the policy, and actually does it matter for an audience like this who are basically running off-grid and can probably pretty much set their own rules? Um, yeah, I suppose when Adrian invited us to talk about policy again, we frantically wrote about what we thought post-federal election would look like, and then we ripped it all up and came to the conference and said, who knows? And we, I was counting, I think policy was mentioned four times today, which is actually quite refreshing, which I think that's a pure indication, Giles, of of what the audience um, believes um, our future looks like. But, you know, from a federal perspective, we just, we just rolled punches in regards to the Clean Energy Council, and our focus now very much switches back to a state focus. 
So here in WA, we're spending um, a lot of time working with our different ministers on how to now actually recover from not following in under a, you know, a Labour federal government, um, because I know a lot of the stances were going to be based on what um, the national stance would be. So they're kind of just reassessing, and I think there's a few comments made already today. We've now gone out looking at what um, the ERA around um, emissions intensive schemes might look like. Um, but look, I think the industry, this industry, has to be very much aware that there is a carbon mechanism not too far down the track, and it is going to form part of, of the discussions in the in the mid to near future. You know, so it's a, it's definitely relevant, I think, for this industry, and maybe not just as exciting as the energy evolutions, but you know, it is it is a part of the conversation. It's important to remember, as we've heard several times today, that a lot of the uh, pressure doesn't need a formal federal government policy. It, that would just make things easier, uh, you know, because uh, as it is, uh, shareholders and customers uh, are all driving um, activity by themselves. Will? So, yeah, I think personally I'm very excited by the opportunity, almost regardless of, of what the policy setting is. You know, I think if we just sort of step back and look at the off, off Australian off-grid mining sector alone, so that, that's a sector that consumes 12 terawatt hours of electricity every year, uh, and that's going to be increasing as a result of electrification. I think what we can expect through the drivers that are happening and the transformation in the sector, that over the next 10 years, we will see roughly a 50% renewable energy contribution occur. So that's six terawatt hours that need to come from renewable energy. And my quick back of the envelope says that that's roughly going to be 400 megawatts of solar and 1.6 gigawatts of wind. Um, so that's, for the renewable energy sector uh, participants in the room here, that's, that's a $3 billion or so sort of pipeline of projects ahead of us in, over the next 10 years. And I think that's extremely exciting, uh, almost regardless of what's happening in the broader policy landscape. Emily, do you agree? I do. I think, especially in the off-grid space, policy is almost irrelevant. Yeah. And as David quite rightly said, shareholders and customers are what are going to drive behaviour. That and economics, of course. You know, at the end of the day, um, I've seen this before, miners can have great sustainability policies, but if the economics don't work, it makes it really hard for them to make a decision to, to actually take that action. The fortunate thing is that economics do work now. And um, as I said before, at the moment, if you're burning diesel, you're burning cash. And on the East Coast, if you're burning gas as well, you're also burning cash. Why haven't you got renewables on the ground? And it really, there's a lot of reasons for that internally. I think a lot of it is internal process for miners. Um, but policy in the off-grid space really, um, I think you said really we can, miners have got, can make <laughs> their own rules <laughs> that are really required. Peter, maybe you <laughs> it can would make life easier. But, you know. Peter, maybe you can tell us what the shareholders are selling you. I think it's important to understand that the, the miners are really a spectrum from the very big end of town down to the minnows, and, uh, and they've got different perspectives on this. At the big end of town, um, there's no doubt that uh, um, carbon pricing is already factored in. Um, at the bottom end of town, it's, it's sort of uh, the smaller companies with market caps under 100 million. It's sort of survival from one capital raising to the next, and this isn't such a big issue. And if they're going to be off-grid again, it's uh, not really uh, on the horizon. But the other point is that I think everyone would welcome some more certainty and, and just get away from this year after year of uncertainty and, and policies getting, getting rejected and not getting through. Yeah. Uh, can, I, can I ask just the audience, Charles, if with no, your good, indulgence, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> just does anyone here work for a company that has a shadow carbon price in their investment decisions? And if they did, could they just raise their hand? So a few. All right. Thank you very much. That's fair enough. Okay. Um, the next question is we, um, that we've got on the menu here about what needs to term in what needs to happen in any sort of market reform. So okay, we'd like to have some sort of certainty at federal level, but in the mining area, so not everything's off grid. Some of it's connected to, to bigger grids. Some of it's connected to the NEM. Um, Dermot, do we want, do we need or do we want to see any sort of particular policy developments on that? Um, we're doing a lot of work on market reform here on, in the Swiss, but in regards to how it impacts the, the mining sector, resource sector, it's pretty minimum, uh, Giles. Like 
My past energy minister told us not to poke the dragon in regards to truck diesel subsidies, for example. You know, so we haven't gone near that. You know, so we're we're just working away with with what we can control, uh, which is, I think, it was the, the commentary about 60% of the mines are are grid connected. Which of them are, are Swiss connected is not not huge, but we're working around what that looks like from a, a Western Power Horizon perspective. Uh, Betwin made a comment or announcement this morning about FMG building large transmission lines. You know, so. It, it is evolving. Uh, whether policy is going to keep up with that is probably unlikely. But you know, we will influence government where we can. Um, you know, but the f concentric focus has been Swiss, you know, southwest development interconnected system um, priorities. Mm. Emily, are you seeing more inquiries for your business of, for, for the procurement process that you met? I mean, is it, are you getting busier? Um, yeah, the, it is getting busy, and it's actually interesting because um, we're seeing. Continually, and it's actually more from the from the mid tiers and the juniors who are coming in, and they're being more willing to want to put renewables as part of their supply option. Um, obviously, again, comes down to economics, but it's not hard to prove that case. So, um, it, I find that those size uh, businesses are really sort of on the forefront of wanting to push through into in making those options happen. I just wanted to go back to market reform because I do work in the NEM as well, and so it's a really interesting um, topic around whether whether we need market reform. Um, around getting more renewables on the ground and decarbonising, and I'd say that um, I don't. Th I'm not sure that market reform is going to drive that. But what I would say is that customers need to take more control of their own purchasing decisions. At the moment, a lot of customers, very large industrials, will rely on whatever retailers will offer them in terms of pricing and optionality. But there are, there is the capability and the the ability and availability of products that they can effectively source themselves and then just use the retailer for their retail license to operate in the market. So I think if customers take more control, that will drive the, um, the uh, uptake of renewables and the more projects to be um, available online, providing, of course, you can get a network service provider to give you a connection. One of the big policy debates that, uh, that in West Australia should probably be held is, like we have on the East Coast, is the degree of... Uh, 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 decentralisation that you want versus centralisation. So historically, of course, it's been a centralised system on the East Coast with big generators sending out uh, to the customers and, and one way. Uh, and that for renewable energy, which requires different transmission connections, that then you have to find a way to do that uh, optimally. So that means perhaps build, well, it does mean building renewable energy zones and transmission and change, changing a whole bunch of rules. and. For those people interested in the NEM, there's an incredible bunch of reform going on uh, because we've now created four or five regulatory bodies and each of those has to have a big regulatory agenda and you know, keep themselves busy and employ more people. So there's an absolute army if you go to the East Coast. So I'd advise all you guys to stay off grid and stay a long, long way away from the system. <laughs> but David, five regulatory bodies keeps us in business. <laughs> <laughs> um, Phil and Peter is the uh, right, sorry, Will and Peter. Um, any, any? Let's close off the um, the regulations and the rules. Anything that you need or you want to see there? I, th I think really just um, greater stability in policies because that really provides the environment for businesses to grow and thrive. And I think you know a really good example of a period of sudden instability in the system was the recent Queensland rule change around having electricians required to mount solar panels. Obviously that was then reversed, but that is something that can really make life challenging for the solution providers. Absolutely reversed, but now appealed by the government, so we're still waiting for that outcome. Um, that's, um, that's pretty mind-boggling, really, that one. Yeah. And that's pretty much going to dry up all new wind solar farm investments in Queensland, I would have thought. I don't know about that, but I mean, what does show in Queensland is it is you know I don't think West you could not have a more divided state in Queensland between uh, the allies of the CFMEU and the ETU allied with the far right uh, of politics in, in, in wanting more coal-fired generation, and basically everyone else who, who wants less, you know, uh, uh, and of course the unions. <clears throat> anyway, let's not go there. <laughs>
Well, we could, we could, we could. But I'm just wondering whether we actually, I mean, what does actually policy certainty mean in this environment? Because we seem to, I mean, the contrast between the discussions that we're having here about people talking about 50% renewables and 100% renewable share for mines, you know, the people most concerned about costs and reliability and the conversations we're having in the eastern states amongst the federal politicians are just so far divided. So. I don't know whether we're actually ever going to hope to get any sort of policy certainty. Is the best that we can hope for is that they just get out of the way and let other people get on? I think when you talk about policy certainty, it's not necessarily about having a policy. It can also be about not having a policy. Um, but the, the one thing that clearly happens when you don't have policy certainty, one way or the other, is it, it drives pricing up. Because when there's uncertainty, uh, markets will price in risk of that uncertainty, and so you continue to pay, pay higher prices. That's for, that's for sure. Yeah. So for the longer we don't have any kind of certainty there, and people will just be hedging, you know, you know, when there's uncertainty, you diversify your risk. So it makes it really difficult from a procurement perspective to really bed down your strategy. You have to be, you know, breaking things up and doing things differently, which is innovation in itself. Again, you know, the utility industry, which is what the power industry is, is basically love certainty. It's based around a low cost of capital. Solar and windows have been said many times, particularly solar, has very low operating costs, very high certainty of costs. The capital costs can be predicted, but the cost of capital comes down to being able, the confidence that you have that the guy's going to pay you every year. And uh, if I've heard it once, I've heard it 150 times, uh, you know, short mine lives are a real struggle, particularly if you want to build transmission infrastructure like Fortescue was talking about. And I think that's a big decision for the northwest of West Australia. As I said once, I'll say it again, how much you want to contribute to having common infrastructure uh, and, and the benefits that you'd get versus the fact that if you don't have it, you may be able to send your next door neighbour broke faster. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Peter, talk to me about um, decarbonisation and particularly international trends from customers. I mean, presumably you're going to make metals and want to... Are you exporting at all or planning to export? Or? No, uh, we're uh, still in the developer stage. Um, but uh, you know, decarbonisation is... Uh, yeah, it, it's some, somewhere everybody wants to get to. Um, very interesting to hear about Kirkland Lake today and um, transforming a mine in Ontario to uh, all their fleet is uh, electric. Um, and I often think back to uh, when I, about in the late 90s, I took a South, Amer South African engineer around WA mines and I showed him the super pit and he looked over the edge and we saw all the whole trucks crawling up the ramp on diesel. And he said, uh, why don't you use trolley assist? In all our big mines in Africa, we have electric trolley assist. And uh, I said, I don't know. Nobody uses it here. So it's just a, a mentality thing. However, that wasn't decarbonizing because they were all using coal-fired el <laughs> electricity for those haul trucks. So that wouldn't help in, in this situation. But um, there's no doubt that, um, and, and right now in Chile, there's a lot of trolley assist used off gas, for example, and there's no reason why it couldn't be used here. Um, in our case, uh, in Carla Window, we, we will be developing <clears throat> an open pit with a diameter of about a kilometre and a maximum depth of about 240 metres, so it's a big hole in the ground. And over eight years, we'll have 10 haul trucks. And we went through the exercise of trying to get them off diesel and um, trying to um, convert them to gas. Each haul truck costs about a million dollars, but we were shocked that uh, there's not a lot of support in, in converting to gas, and the cost of conversion of each truck was about $200,000. So um, it was prohibitive for us at that time, but it shows it can be done. And you know, before the election, everyone was terrified about you know, what's going to happen to the diesel rebate if labor gets in, and you know, the cost of diesel could escalate massively again, and, and what's happening in the Gulf of the Straits of Hormuz now, it could escalate again. So. Converting to gas is, is a good thing, and it does reduce carbon outputs as well. Um, so yeah. these are all interesting issues from our, our perspective. Charles, it's also probably worth mentioning another example from a different state in the mining industry is the um, coal seam gas extraction in Queensland. Basically, that's been 100% electrified. Um, 
um, and, and, you know, uh, it's all done with grid-connected electricity, which is still largely coal, so it doesn't achieve a decarbonisation goal yet. But because it's all electrified, if you change the underlying power source, it will be. Hopefully, will. So I think in relating to policy, I think there's an important perception piece of Australia on the global stage in terms of its attractiveness for global talent and capital. So, you know, last week, let's just look at that as a week. You've got, you know, in Queensland, a new coal basin uh, being opened up with the Carmichael mine getting its final environmental approval. But in that same week in the UK, you've got the government enshrining in law a net zero carbon target for 2050. Um, and that's, you know, the UK being the first major economy to go that way. And I think, you know, we should step back and think, what do we want Australia to look like uh, to make sure that we are attracting the right people and investment in order to drive the transition we want to see here? And that does relate to the policy. Guys, what do you, can you add something about this sort of international push for decarbonisation? We did hear it during the day that some people are motivated by the fact that they're expected now, they're exporting metals, they're exporting whatever, um, equipment or, or, or products. Um, there is an expectation now that it'll be low carbon. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, Giles. Um, was talked about several times today about um, the financiers looking right back down the supply chain as to where... Um, the origin of their material is going to come from, you know, and it needs to be it needs to be green, so green metals. So, you know, the idea of, of you know going from where we're going to the hydrogen to you know a few people talk today about exporting Australian energy through through metals is is a fascinating thing. But it's back to Will's point about the international expectations and assumptions of what Australia will be doing, and then to, to realise that maybe we're not leading as much as we should be. So, it's um, it is an international expectation that Australia will be in that place, you know, and that's before we even talk about a, an international uh, trading scheme, you know, around, around carbon, but, you know, that's, that's further down the track, that's a bit too much out there to blow in people's mind at the minute, I think. And, and then, of course, there are the usual uh, positive arguments that people do-gooders, that is, decarbonisers, trot out, uh, namely that Australia's solar and wind resource is fantastic, particularly here in West Australia. I mean, uh, I keep coming back to CWP's uh, uh, massive solar and uh, wind $20 billion project. If that could be lined up with some transmission, you know, you'd have a completely different state to what you have now, but it would, you know, does it work economically? Uh, and, of course, the minerals extraction opportunities that, uh, that, you know, batteries in particular, but also transmission wires, copper, aluminium, uh, 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 lithium, manganese, cobalt, nickel, I mean, these are all mineral. These are all opportunities that uh, that I guess you guys have all looked at a lot of times. That fascinates me, actually. This idea. I mean, we've been talking about hydrogen. We will talk more about hydrogen now. But you know, this hydrogen idea that um, just based on export, and I think that's the way it's been sold. Let's replace our coal and energy exports with green hydrogen. But the point that was made by the guy from um, with the manganese mine, talking about, well, why don't we just do all the refining and the smelting in Australia? Because we get over that hump of we can produce hydrogen quite cheaply, but we can't ship it and transport it. Well, and that's right. And, and, and I haven't heard anyone suggest how the transport cost is going to be lowered, but obviously it has to be if Australia is going to be competitive. In, and, and so the idea is doing more minerals processing, which the uh, uh, Bloomberg representative talked about, and then she said it was because the price of electricity in Australia isn't competitive with the price of electricity in China. I want to tell you it is competitive. Uh, um, uh, because coal-fired electricity in China, as I keep, I've said it once, I'll say it again, they pay a higher price for coal. The electricity price is around 70 Aussie. If you don't believe me, you can go and look at the quarterly statements of the state-owned generators, and, and, and they report the numbers there. Uh, and so, you know, uh, solar and wind in Australia can, uh, is, is, is a perfectly viable energy source. And that's, that's exactly the point that Element 25 was making when, about the manganese. Um, guys, you got anything to add about I mean, to what extent are the people you're talking to, are they thinking about hydrogen either as a storage thing in the stationary environment, as a mobile fuel, or even as a means to make big things? I, I think um, in, in most of the conversations I've been involved with, um, Obviously, we've seen great experience curves um, on wind and solar, and, and really people are expecting similar experience curves for the electrolyzers. So, you know, it's likely that those systems will decrease in capex by 70 percent by by 2030. So, I think people are thinking that it's it's coming, but it, we're just not quite there yet. Um, I do think there's a great opportunity for it to be used locally, um, you know, using it on our doorstep and avoid 
some of those challenges that we have around handling and shipping. Um, but I do think there is an opportunity there that there just needs to be some more work uh, in order for us to get there. Mm. I think it's interesting, the concept of hydrogen as a, um, as a power source or the, or the fuel used for a power source is still not something that's seen as a, is not, not talked about as a real world option right now. But what I find really interesting is that it's starting to creep into conversations about uh, a possibility in the future, which hasn't really been there until the last, well, even few months even. Um, so it is starting to creep into conversation, not a right now, but a, we're keeping half an eye on it. So, and, uh, Are we getting ahead of ourselves, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> well, this has actually been a really interesting thing, and it's come up several times today, is this concept that what um, customers want is actually ahead of what can actually be delivered right now. Um, hydrogen, obviously, the economics, as, as always, economics always have to work um, in order to go ahead with any kind of new concept. But it's really interesting that for mining, which, which is um, quite often quite slow to move to new technology, the, the transition in energy uh, technology and the change that's been so rapid in the last five years means that it's almost like we're becoming a bit less sensitive around thinking about new things and bringing new concepts into being, which is, which is good. It's good. It's good for innovation. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting to see that sort of change in thinking. Um, but, as always, dollars are Just, where it's at. Giles, so, you know, we, we, you and I always talk about power stations and stationary energy because that's what we talk about. But, I mean, uh, over here it's become very clear to me that transport uh, is a big deal uh, in the resource industry. Uh, and, you know, you've got two ways of decarbonising transport uh, at the moment. Batteries, which are, uh, you know, a proven technology, essentially, and hydrogen, which is, for transport, also a, a semi-viable situation. Again, if I could just throw it open to the audience, does, is it too early to ask an audience question? Oh, we can ask an audience question. I'm just wondering, has anyone done a comparison in the trucking industry between, a, say, a battery-powered truck and, and a hydrogen-powered truck and worked out today or even in a couple of years' time which they think is going to be cheaper? No, no, no one's got that far thinking no about it. No one's going up, yes. But let's go, oh, we've got a hand. We've got a hand. I think I'm in, oh, but, in, in the midst. But, but I this can... is going to be a hydrogen answer, I'm pretty much sure. Yes, it's Warner Priest from Siemens, yeah. so I think it yeah. will be. <laughs> Mr. Hydrogen. So I've, I've got a little bit of an idea. I mean, uh, these fuel cell electric trucks, uh, you may have heard of Nikola. They, they, they're introducing those into the market. Um, and, you know, they, these are road train trucks. They can get uh, a range of about 1,000 to 2,000 kilometres depending on what's required. Um, and the cost of the actual fuel is about the equivalent um, of, of diesel. Um, the maintenance of these trucks is considerably lower than a diesel uh, a truck, uh, but the cost of the actual truck itself is probably two to three times that of a, a diesel truck. So when you take these things into account, the fact that there are a, a new product coming into the market, I think they've uh, um, sold something like uh, 300 of these trucks um, to a brewery in the US and we can expect probably these trucks to come to, to Australia in the next two or three years. They fuel cell electric, they're hybrid, they, they're not only hydrogen but they've also got a battery in there. And it's really about the range and the fact that they carry a, a big load. Uh, and that's going to be a hydrogen truck uh, rather than a battery because your battery, you, you're limited by range. Uh, 300 kilometres maximum. I, I hear that, and that's a very good point. But on uh, on on the mine site, it, you don't need that range, do you? If I look at what's actually been done around the world in buses, uh, for instance, there's something like six or eight hundred thousand buses, which I guess run short ranges before they get recharged. And as far as I know, they're, they're nearly all, all 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 electric. Yeah. So so on on the actual mine site, I I see a. Uh, pantograph um, type system, electrical dump trucks are going into uh, into the pit uh, with this this pantograph system, and if they need to come off the pantograph, uh, battery is fine. So it'll be a hybrid electrical battery. Battery um, potentially could have fuel cell and and hydrogen on there um, if there's some form of range on on the particular site. But it's really mine to port, um, be a train or road train. This is where, where hydrogen will play a role because you've got the range, you've got the distance. Thank you. 
It's interesting, that stuff about um, range, actually. I was talking to someone um, the other day about um, WA's recent decision to buy 900 diesel buses, which I think raised a lot of eyebrows. And I think don't, the, go there, the, don't go there. <laughs> don't go there. Don't go there. The funny bit of information I got was that the reason why they were bought was because the rules say that they've got to have 400 kilometres or 350 kilometres of range. It was pointed out to them, well, most bus trips are only 30 kilometres. Think about it. So um, I think there's a way to go there. But um, Peter, you were shaking your head or nodding your head, and um, either talk to us about hydrogen or just talk to us about being a miner. And this sort of, you know, if you did this 10, 20 years ago, you just go ahead, you get a diesel plant or a gas plant, whatever was more convenient. You buy a diesel truck. Now you've got all these options in front of you. Yeah, um, very encouraging to hear those numbers on uh, hydrogen on those. Uh trucks uh, being used in the States. And also yesterday, to very positive uh, comments from Alana McTiernan, obviously very up to speed on this issue and uh, supportive, and uh, encouraged also by the, the, uh, the initiatives um, that are happening within FMG and BHP on hydrogen. And if you think about what those companies have done in the last decade with going to autonomous vehicles, I think that the switch to hydrogen vehicles is a, is a much smaller jump in technology for them than what they've already done with autonomy. And uh, I can easily see um, them leading the path. And uh, they're certainly not afraid of the new technology or leading the field. It's, and it's, it's up to those, with, and the collaboration as well, with, uh, which we saw that is happening too. I'm very encouraged by that. And, um, and it also makes me wonder, you know, going back to my, my example of uh, struggling with converting diesel trucks to gas in the Pilbara, when we've got so much cheap gas in the Pilbara, pipelines all over the place, why aren't BHP and FMG, etc., using gas in their trucks? Well, the answer is probably that they've leapfrogged that already and they want to go to hydrogen. What role is um, hydrogen playing in your thinking, Will? Um, yeah, so I suppose we, we see it being part of uh, sort of new uh, energy plant solutions of, of the future. Um, so we are sort of factoring it into our considerations for design um, and, and of, of the systems that we'll be building, owning and operating. But I think, um, you know, broad, broadly there is this, this whole wave of new technologies and, and commercial models which just didn't exist a few years ago. And I think it's, it's really exciting to see that opportunity um, you know, within a lot of the miners, we're seeing new energy specialists coming into those teams. There are uh, leading consultants advising them on, on how to do this. But I think um, really sort of something that resonated with me earlier today was Kirsten Rose's uh, point from BHP and in that there's a, all of us in this room, this is sort of our bread and butter. We know about this. Um, but there's such, you know, an important role that we have of educating our broader organizations because they're not all unfortunately avid readers of Renew Economy, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, we've got to spread the message um, around those new technologies to make sure that they understand what the economics of hydrogen are, what its future looks like, um, and, and spread that and, and be generous with that knowledge. I, I do think that decarbonisation industry is the single biggest global industry. It's, it's a growth industry. I mean, it, because it is such a serious long-term global industry. I forget, there's something like seven trillion, I want to say, I can't, US of, of, of coal, oil and gas produced each year, most of which, if you take, accept the science, which I personally absolutely do, has to go away within about 20 to 30 years. That is just a massive amount of economic change uh, that, that, you know, it's, it's worth thinking about. Hmm. I, I, I agree as well, and I think that we're getting very close to a cliff edge. And, and people are like the proverbial lemmings, they're, they're reaching the cliff edge and then trying to back away. And I think it's gonna be those who, you know, take a leap of faith first who are, and be the front runners are the ones who are really gonna be ahead of the game. But there is a lot of fear factor over the, the step change that will happen in uh, energy requirements over the next yeah. two de decades, which will go fast. Do we have any questions from the audience at all? Anyone wanna put their hand up and um, ask a question of um, either us or... Um or one of the um, one of things, throw that microphone. We've got this wonderful mic for the people on the podcast listening. Um, 
We've thrown the microphone. It's wrapped in a little foam ball. Um, it's quite cute. Isn't it wonderful? It's, it's been a great conference, John. I haven't had as much fun, not just because it's in the Western, but it's just at the Energy Minds conference. I thoroughly recommend everyone turn up next year. <laughs> question, please. Uh, my name's Louis Kent. I'm with BHP. And my question is, can I please make a comment <laughs> um, about the, the previous discussion around decarbonising um, fleet material movement? Please do. So uh, this is just sort of referencing stuff that's already out there, but maybe people in this audience aren't aware. There's the International Council of Mining and Metals has a, a program called Innovation for Cleaner, Safer Vehicles, and part of that is decarbonising surface fleet. Um, the the ambition statement is to have net zero surface emission, uh, net zero emissions surface mining equipment by 2040. 2040 sounds like a long way away, but it's like two replacement cycles of, of fleet for a mining company. So that everyone's been talking about the need for collaboration and the need to decarbonise material movement. And that's um, a great example of a, a large part of the industry. I think it's about 26 companies um, coming together with all of the OEMs as well to try and decarbonise material movement. What, what, what's the thinking at the moment? I mean, you know, what's the way forward? Is it going to be hydrogen? Is that, is that already a good guess? Because we heard a lot about hydrogen, and I can see there's a lot of support, but for me, I look in the consumer market, it's all about batteries. So the answer to that is we're very early in the journey. Um, so it was, it was only, this, this um, program was only announced, or the ambition statements were only announced in October last year at the IMARC conference in Melbourne. So we're, we're working on, so step one is looking at all of the technical scenarios. What is technically possible? How can you actually deliver the gigajoules that you need with the reliability you need at the intensity that's required to meet the, de the demands of um, mining applications? But given the time frame, you've got the flexibility to think quite broadly about what does autonomy mean? What, how could the form factor of vehicles change? How can mining practices change? So it may be that to fully decarbonise material movement, you need to mine differently. It, it, that's how broadly we're thinking. Interesting. There's another question down the corner then. Any comments on the uh, stage while we're waiting for the microphone to be thrown? No, this comment that we've got to go out and educate people. I mean, I, I, I don't know, you know, this is such a big industry, uh, you can only ever hope to know a little tiny bit of it. <laughs> Down the corner there. Uh, hi, Giles. Um, Kirsten Rose, it's BHP's turn to ask questions this afternoon. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to rewind the panel a little bit to the beginning of the conversation around policy and, uh, you know, appreciate that what, what is policy certainty? What does it look like? Um, you know, w we came very close to a neg, didn't get it. But what I'd like to ask the panel is if the policy fairies visit you and give you one wish um, for Australia, um, as you know, maybe some, each of the panelists could tell us what they think the one thing that they would wish for would be, what would transform Australia in this space? Well, I, you know, I'd like to have a new, um, like Mark Twain for someone that, uh, that never was a minor as far as I know, had the two most famous statements about uh, policy, his one statement about policy, death and taxes, uh, and his uh, policy about a mine, which is a bad joke, uh, if I, probably everyone here knows, knows it, so I won't uh, repeat it, but, uh, well, I will, you know, what's, what's the definition of a mine, a hole in the ground with a man, someone standing on top of it, you know? Uh, so what I would wish for, what I would wish for is a, a decarbonisation date, a time scale. The mechanism by which you get there is, is probably doesn't matter as much as, as, as just uh, uh, acceptance of the fact that it has to be achieved. And 2050 just is far too late, uh, you know, for serious decarbonisation from a science perspective. Dermot and... Uh, and um, I agree with you in, in large part because by putting a... Um, by putting a date on it, people think they've got lots of time to get there. We had a date before, actually, but it got repealed. <laughs> well, <a> few, yeah. <laughs> Never mind about 2014. Anyway, <laughs> so actually my wish would be to not have policy, to actually have government just step away from the whole issue around decarbonisation, because I think that actually shareholders will change... That change the way that companies work. When you look at the demographics and you understand that baby boomers are getting older and, quite frankly, dying off, and you've got a whole generation Thanks. that are coming... Sorry. <laughs> coming through right now who are fully, fully aware of carbon loading on the earth and what it will do to their future, not even their children's or their grandchildren's future, but their own future. 
And I have an 11-year-old daughter who asked me the other day, Mum, what can I personally do to change the way that the world's going and how climate change is playing out? That's wow. an 11-year-old. And by the time she's 18 or younger, she'll be a shareholder in those companies and directing companies the way that they will act. And that will be faster than policy, I think. <laughs> do you have it? In, any... Profound, what? profound comments. In, no, I, I'm just still thinking that the neg, although it wasn't ideal, was a hell of a good starting point to what could have been structured. So, and it is that carbon mechanism. Except piece. that was more of a mechanism without a target, wasn't it? It, it was, Giles. You know, but we had in the, the void of, of nothing. I'd still think that sort of carbon target is, is kind of what we need to be looking towards because you know we've we've talked about it all day today. It's it's going to be the next generation that will kind of ask the question and go, "What were you thinking?" Let's ask the audience, how many people here would prefer a target and how many people would prefer a defined mechanism? Let's put our hands up first for a target. Oh, probably a bit under half. And, and a policy mechanism? Oh, target wins. There you so, go. So I, I actually think a carbon price uh, is a carbon tax, sorry, not, not is the most certain thing you can have, easiest to administer and provides the most certainty to business. You don't have to think about the emissions reduction targets or anything. You know what you're going to be paying well in advance and gives, provides the most certainty and revenue to the government to uh, no doubt uh, spend on something that they shouldn't. I, 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 com I completely agree with that. that would be exactly my wish would be a price on carbon and um, I suppose really, you know, we just need bipartisan support. But just you know, carrying forward from Emily's comment, I actually have a, a, a one-year-old and um, came to the realization, really actually only just last week, that he is not gonna have the opportunity in his sort of working career to make this change happen because by the time he's, he's 20, 30, that's 2040, 2050, we really need to get this going way before his generation comes up. So it really firmly sits with me um, and, and you know, the generations that are working today to make sure we are driving the change Peter. And, uh, just in one word, uh, certainty is, is what I would ask for, and I think uh, I speak for the, the majority of junior companies in the mining sector. The other point I'd make is that um, while it's, it's valid to say that shareholder activists and insurers and other stakeholders might drive an agenda for uh, mining companies, we must remember that not all mining companies are public companies. And uh, there's quite a few private mining companies who have an extremely low profile who don't have um, those same forces pushing them. Mm, interesting. Do we have one more question? Yes, we do, over there. I'll just make a comment. I don't think you'll get the push from the insurance companies because they really don't care. The more damages, they just put premiums up. I mean, that's an extremely serious uh, point to make. They, uh, and actually, for someone who wants the actual facts of the matter, uh, which I, I, sometimes hurts me, but I try to be honest. I had a conversation with a, a leading actuary, someone who's developing the climate, uh, has developed the climate change index in Australia just last week and wants to transform that into a climate risk index, which is something that could actually be used uh, for insurance policy pricing. And the insured amount of damages at the moment around the world from catastrophes really you can't statistically see it moving from year to year. That's not to say it isn't moving because the annual variation is so high that the noise to signal ratio is very, very high, but you can't actually detect movement in the mean uh, as, uh, at the moment. I think I understood that. The question over there. Afternoon, David Peffer from Langer Rook. Uh, in the paper today, we saw nuclear power was a touch point again. Any closing comments from our panelists on whether that plays a role in the future. I remember um, being um, a cadet journalist in the West Australian about four decades ago when Charles Court was talking about nuclear um, at the time and it was as balmy an idea then as it is now. Um, it's just extraordinary. Anyone who's actually looked at nuclear costs, um, it's just great. I mean, there's, there's no room to put one in WA, there's no one room to put one in South Australia. You wouldn't put one in Tasmania um, and the rest of the grid, I just can't see. It's, it's just ridiculous. but. It's part of this sort of bizarre conversation that we're having. Um, I don't know. Look, I can't explain it. It's a massive distraction. I was frightened by a, um, a poll that I think came out today, was it? Or maybe yesterday. 44% of the general public support nuclear, but with absolutely no knowledge 
of the costs and what that means. It basically, I mean, when, you wouldn't get a nuclear power station within 20 years here. We could decarbonise before that's, then. That, that's right. I mean, I guess all business executives, particularly in the mining industry, prefer low capex projects with short-term paybacks, you know. I mean, that's... If you... Anything where you have to develop... Like, I, I sat through the development of the LNG industry in Queensland, you know, and it took eight years, and, of course, there were cost overruns, uh, um, and, the, you know, the oil price and, therefore, the gas price moved around so much. Well, you can just imagine how much change is going to go through with, with a nuclear in, uh, power plant. Plus, it's actually operationally very unsuited. The way uh, grid-connected power is moving is really all about flexibility, where most of the energy is coming from wind and solar, firmed up one way or another by various sorts of which demand response is going to be one part, and, you know, batteries and pumped hydro and bits of gas and bits of coal. Nuclear power stations, with their absolutely flat load, uh, that's where the pumped hydro industry came from, you know, uh, flat output, because it, just, to, just to firm that up, and it's really a technology that, in my opinion, uh, y unless you go with these modern uh, small nuclear reactors that are meant to be load-following, but they don't exist yet, except in, in nuclear scientists' minds. Anybody else want to add something on that before we wrap up and thank our audience and things like that? Let's just finish then on a really positive thing. What's the most exciting thing you found out, held out today, very briefly? Dermot, you've got Four 15, seconds. 20 seconds. Yeah. No, as an engineer, it's actually just fantastic to see the actual case studies. You know, we're actually starting to see wind and solar get on the ground with batteries. Uh, probably the one thing that I've noticed, it's not the battery producers or the wind turbine producers sitting here, it's the guys who are implementing these solutions. So, you know, I think that's a fascinating kind of uh, just way of dynamic, the way it's actually progressing that the producers are actually sitting in the background and letting these guys get on with it. Emily, 20 seconds. Um, my surprising thing is that the process of energy procurement still hasn't really changed and we're still using an engineering project model. It doesn't really work. It doesn't allow innovation to come forward. It doesn't actually allow the best solutions to come forward. So I'd say, talk to me. But, <laughs> <laughs> but also think about that. It's not actually an engineering project. It's an energy project different. Will? Um, so I think um, with the, the fragmentation of the industry, um, potentially limiting historical uptake, that being addressed through some of these cross-industry collaborations, and I think Oz Minerals' announcement around their collaboration framework is, is very exciting. Peter? A um, couple of things for me. One was uh, the, uh, the, the fact that projects are seeing substitution in new power plants uh, for mines in Western Australia, um, substitution by renewables without large grants and we've, we should move on from the Degrassa example, which was almost completely funded by ARENA, and, um, and now we're seeing them that they're actually viable and standing on their own two feet, such as the Agnew one, which is great. And the other thing was the uh, people looking at wind turbines for as little as seven meters per second wind speed, and uh, I was flabbergasted to see that they're putting five turbines up at Agnew, which I don't think is a very windy place. I've been there lots of times. But the other thing to remember about mine sites and, and height of turbines is that most of us have 40 or 60 meter high waste dumps already, so you might have an advantage already to stick one on. <laughs> David. Uh, the solutions industry. So we've seen the hybrid model emerge. I already mentioned that batteries, you know, are not competitive for time shifting of energy yet, but they're doing great at doing the smoothing job out and, and, and smoothing the integration between the variable energy and, and, and the firming diesel power that, that backs it, or gas power that backs it up. So, uh, and people shouldn't forget about the software that goes with that. There's active software development. Um, I, I, I think there's, there, there, that's the main point for me. Well, that's fantastic. Look, we're going to wrap it up there. I think we're going to move on to drinks and then dinner, and the um, people living on the postcard podcast can uh, drop the kids off at school, do the washing up, get out of the garden or whatever. I'd just like to thank um, Energy and Minds Conference for inviting us to participate here. I hope you people enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for participating. Thanks to our panellists. And our regular sponsors. And our regular sponsors, What Watches and Solaray Energy, um, without whom we wouldn't be here and we wouldn't be doing the podcast. Um, thanks for all the fantastic support we've got back today and the, the feedback and um, David it's been a privilege to sit almost within touching distance of you and uh, we'll be back on remote next week I think. <laughs> Got to be careful about that but th thanks Josh. Thank you very much, bye for now.
Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatchers.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.